So our next reading is from Luke chapter 2, which can be found on page 6 of your booklets. And Nathan will be speaking to us from these words in a moment. So I'll give you a moment to find that. So Luke chapter 2, starting from verse 1. In those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Thank you so much, Catherine. Good morning, everyone, and a Merry Christmas to you all. Just one week to go. And I wonder if your house is beginning to look a little bit like my house does at the moment. We are not the tidiest family in the world. Uh, Our house is generally in a sort of pleasing, low-level chaos. Uh, We can never find our keys. There's usually a sock on every surface, that kind of thing. But around Christmas time, something starts to shift. Some of our rooms get unusually tidy. Uh, The front room is all sorted out with the Christmas tree in the corner and the bunting and the lights and and everything packed away, and it looks quite pretty. And our bedroom is slowly being transformed into a nice guest room, and that's because my parents are coming to stay and they can't see how we live. Um, Some rooms are getting tidier, ordered. The mess is getting removed, but here's the question, where does all that mess go? If you're thinking, well, surely, tied it away to the appropriate place, then I'm afraid you simply don't know us at all. (laughs) The answer, obviously, is dumped in my study, along with boxes of presents waiting to be wrapped, sundry other items, and various socks. I want you to imagine those two rooms if it's not too painful for you. Imagine a beautifully tidy and ordered and decorated front room. Tree in the corner, sparkling with lights, everything in its right place, a fire in the log burner, candles flickering on the shelves. 
And imagine my study, books higgledy-piggledy on every conceivable surface, boxes of presents which you have to clamber over to get anywhere, uh, clothes strewn on the back of chairs, broken toys on the floor. It is a temptation, by the way, as a preacher, to exaggerate for comic effect. I am not exaggerating. Um, Now imagine uh, those rooms, and let me ask you a question. Which room feels most like our world? Do we live in a world where everything is ordered and beautiful, where everything works and everything fits? A world where we feel we can rest and enjoy life, as our family does at the end of our day in our front room. Or does it feel a bit more like my study? There's good in there. You can imagine it being a pleasant place. But it's all just a bit of a mess. And it seems to be getting messier. Things are broken and disordered, and it's not a comfortable place to be. Let me ask you a further question. Which room feels more like your life? Are you someone who is serenely sailing through life? Your every thought ordered, every relationship straightforward and happy, every part of your body on top form. And if so, what's that like? Uh, For most of us, I guess, as we all cough our way through this uh, service, I guess we feel some of that disorder and chaos and dissatisfaction with the way our lives are going, don't we? Things are messy. Things are complicated. And while a lot of that is probably the fault of someone else, if we're honest, quite a lot of the mess and complication in our lives is at least partly our fault. We just can't seem to get ourselves together to make life work as it should. Or is that just me? I hope it's not just me. Well, what's to be done about all of that? In the case of something like my study, the answer seems pretty clear. I just need to tidy it. It's my fault, it's my responsibility, and I probably have the ability to do it. I'm just a little bit lazy. But what about the mess in our lives? Can we apply the same logic to it, that we've just got to sort it out? And what about the mess in our world? We often look at the brokenness of our world, don't we, and think, why won't somebody just do something? We want someone to sort it out, don't we? We we elect politicians every few years with the hope that they will be the ones to fix the broken aspects of our society. And yet whatever people try doesn't seem to work, doesn't seem to happen. Well, that brings us to the passage that we just had read. This is the classic Christmas story, the nativity, the narrative of the birth of Jesus as it's told uh, in the Bible. And at this church, we love to look at the words of Bible, the Bible closely to learn what God would have to say to us through it. So do open up that passage again if you've closed it. There's a very simple outline on your carol sheet if you want to take any notes or just to know where we're going to guide us through. The first thing I want to see from this passage is the power of the King of Rome. The power of the King of Rome. Look with me at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, I think you'd be forgiven for skimming over those verses a little bit, unless you're like a hardcore historian or something like that. It just seems like a bit of background to the real meat of the story. But it is worth pausing on those verses, I think. Firstly, to note that this grounds Jesus' story in real space-time history. The story of Jesus is not a myth, it's not a parable, it is a real historical occurrence happening at a definite point in time and space. This is the era of Caesar Augustus, the king of Rome, one of the very greatest emperors in Rome's history. If you look him up, you'll find he is a great reformer and builder. He laid the foundations, both literally and figuratively, 
uh, of the Roman Empire as we remember it today. He gave his name to the month of August, fun fact. And he began what was known as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, 200 years of peace and stability for the whole Roman Empire, which by the time he got finished was over 70 million people spread over Europe and Asia and Africa. He's a very impressive and powerful man, a very impressive ruler, the kind of bloke you might think who might be able to tidy my study, who might even be able to sort out the problems in our world. He might be the kind of man to bring some order out of the chaos. And that's clearly what he's trying to do here. He takes a census. He wants to know who's who. Who does he have under his rule? Where do they live? What are their jobs? What is their status? We often talk these days about big data, don't we? Companies like Google and Amazon who collect our information online and log all our cookies and generally, without us realising it or really consenting to it, know everything about us and therefore can control our lives. So I'll I'll take my tinfoil hat off just for a moment. Well, Silicon Valley did not invent that. Caesar Augustus was all about big data. And I want you to see the power this man has. He makes a decree, speaks a few Latin words perhaps drips some wax onto a seal and presses it on a piece of paper, and with that, makes 70 million people across three continents do his bidding, just like that. Now, in the days before the internet and mass media and fast transport, the sheer administrative headache must have been absolutely unthinkable. Imagine being a civil servant in Caesar Augustus's regime. You want to do what now? But it's not just the civil servants that have a job to do. Everyone, as it says in verse 3, everyone has to go to their hometown to register. This may be one of the biggest mass movements of people ever organised in human history. Just think about it. Caesar raises a finger and millions of people are compelled to stop what they're doing, put down their tools, interrupt their daily routines and go and register in their hometowns. For some people that's probably easy because they're living in their hometowns. For others, it would involve a potentially arduous journey on foot for hundreds of miles. And all because Caesar said so. All because Caesar wanted to know what was going on in his empire. All because Caesar wanted to bring some control and some order out of the chaos. This is immense power, isn't it? I believe the young people today would call this a flex. Young people? There are, no, yes, okay, good. Uh, Caesar is flexing his muscle. In fact, he did this rather a lot. Augustus rose to power through subtly disposing of his enemies, weakening the political institutions in Rome until he was sole ruler, emperor, dictator with total power over the whole empire. Now, we might think, well, if it works, fair enough. If he really can bring order from the chaos, if he can bring lasting peace and stability to our world, then sure, let the guy have the power to order us around. You see that instinct, don't you, in our political world? Let's just get the strong bloke in. Let's get a strong man in. We know he's not the nicest guy. He's not the most friendly. He's not the kindest. His personal life is a mess. But he gets stuff done. He sorts stuff out. I wonder how you react to that. I wonder if you think that's what this world needs. It worked for Rome, sort of. certainly worked for Augustus, but the Pax Romana didn't last. Rome, once again, pretty quickly fell into chaos and mess and is now no more as an empire. And while the Pax Romana worked fine for Rome, 
It was less fun for the subjugated people they conquered, including the people of Judea in our story today. As the Roman historian Tacitus put it at the time, Augustus's motive was lust for power. There had certainly been peace, but it was a blood-stained peace of disasters and assassinations. Such is the power of the king of Rome. A mighty kingdom, no doubt, a kingdom of some stability and some order, but one at the point of a sword, one at the price of the freedom of many peoples and lost almost as soon as it was achieved. Now, that is a story, I think, that is told over and over again in our world, isn't it? Trust in political power, trust in military might gets us somewhere for a bit, but it always seems to be compromised and solid by people who have a lust for glory And it rarely lasts very long. So, who can bring order out of the chaos? Well, that takes us to our second point, the promise of the king of Judea. Now, I wonder if you have an advent calendar this year. Just put your hands up. Um, Who's got an advent calendar this year? Yeah, 60% of people, roughly. Um, I think the advent calendar is one of the all-time great human inventions. Now, the reason I think that is because Advent is all about waiting. I think we've probably forgotten that in our um, materialistic day and age. Advent these days is largely about panic shopping and listening to Slade on repeat. But Advent in in traditional churches is about preparing your heart to receive Jesus. And so it's actually supposed to be about waiting and humbling and praying and often fasting in preparation for the feast of Christmas. And the Advent calendar was invented for one reason— It's because waiting is really hard. Waiting is hard. Children know this particularly acutely, don't they? Christmas is close, but it's not here yet. And so every morning that it isn't Christmas is exquisite agony. And so the Advent calendar helps them and helps us wait. Every morning there is a little token. A picture, if you've got a traditional calendar, a piece of chocolate, if you're more modern, a little foretaste, we've got chocolate, a little foretaste, a little reminder that Christmas is coming. A sign that says, keep waiting, keep hoping, the promised day is drawing ever closer. I mention that because the people of Judea at this time were in that state. They were waiting for a promise to be kept. Although it had been an awfully long time coming, and many of them had given up hope. It's a promise that's hinted at in verse 4. Look at that with me. Verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Now, why does Luke tell us that that way? He could have just said, Joseph went to Bethlehem because he was from Bethlehem. But instead, he tells us twice about King David, that Bethlehem was David's town and that Joseph was born in David's line. He belonged to David's tribe and could trace his descendants back to that ancient king. He was, in fact, in the line of succession. Now, Joseph himself was in no danger of actually becoming king of Judea. He has, as we have visually demonstrated, a carpenter, and actually there wasn't a king of Judea at this time. There hadn't been a king of Judea for centuries, actually. Not since the country was taken over first by the Babylonians, then the Persians, and then the Romans. The kings of Judea were just ancient history this time, and most of the people had given up hope of ever having a king again. And yet, 
Deep back in the nation's history lay a promise. A promise that was made to King David. Let me read it to you from the Old Testament. This is from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7, if you want to look it up in your own time later. This is God speaking to King David. He says, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. A promise made hundreds of years ago that one day a king would emerge from the line of David in his house. A king that would be king forever. A king who had the approval of the God who made the world. A king who could legitimately be called God's son. Later in the Old Testament, we read further promises about this king, that he would rule with righteousness and justice, that he would defeat every enemy and bring security, indeed, that he would bring salvation, that he would do what Caesar Augustus ultimately couldn't do to bring about a lasting kingdom of peace, to banish the darkness, to end the chaos, and to fix the brokenness of our world. That was the theme of our first reading, wasn't it? If you remember that, there we heard Zechariah praise his God that he had raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Zechariah had never forgotten God's promise. And he saw that the birth of his son, who was John the Baptist, was the very last window to be opened on the advent calendar before the promised king would come in the line of David. And so what do we see here in our story? We see a man in the line of David going back to the town of David, the town, by the way, prophesied in the Old Testament as the place where the promised king would be born, accompanied by his heavily pregnant wife. This is meant to give us the same sense that children have when they go to sleep on Christmas Eve. Oh, it's nearly time. Just one more sleep. It's just around the corner. Well, before we see exactly how God will keep his promise to the king of Judea and what it means for us, I just want to note one more thing in this passage and ask you one more question. Who's in charge of this story? Who's in charge? We saw earlier the flex of the king of Rome. Caesar Augustus exercising all his might, showcasing the glory of the Roman Empire, striving to bring order out of the chaos through the force of sheer power. And what's the result? The result is that a descendant of David is forced to go to the town of David just in time for his wife to give birth to a son in the line of David. You see, at one level, we are witnessing the obvious power of the kingdom of Rome, of the kingdom of man, of the kingdom of earth. But look deeper, and we see the hidden power of the kingdom of God. Without anyone or many people really realizing it, In the middle of ordinary life, because of what might have been just a bureaucratic exercise in bookkeeping, God is keeping a centuries-old promise which will revolutionize the whole world. It is hidden. It is quiet. As Becky said earlier, something ordinary is becoming extraordinary. And it's very, very surprising. Because finally, we're going to see in this passage the poverty of the king of Bethlehem. I'm sure you've noticed, um, as I have, that your tastes in Christmas presents change a bit as you get a bit older, don't they? 
Uh, here's one thing I've noticed. Little children love a big present, right? The one they're most excited to open is the massive box, uh, the huge thing under the Christmas tree. Open that one first. But when you get older, it's, it's, it's the small things that get your attention, isn't it? The, the slim square boxes or the little envelopes with a little bulge in the middle. That gets us excited. Well, gets me excited, I don't know. Uh, you do you. If you want a big present, go for it. Um, <clears throat> well, if it's true that good things do come in small packages, then we should expect something special in the birth of Jesus. Because as Caesar Augustus is sipping his wine and eating his grapes, I can only assume in a toga, in his palace in Rome, Jesus has a very different beginning to his life. Notice the hints all the way through of the smallness and the hiddenness and the poverty of his birth. His father, we know, is a carpenter. His mother is no one in particular. They come, verse 4, from Nazareth in Galilee, a town which was known at the time as a a rural backwater. It was, frankly, a a bit rubbish. Uh, Later on in in Jesus' life, one of his disciples is told that there's there's this guy from Nazareth, and he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's that sort of town, okay? It's a rubbish little town. Um, Verse 5, Mary is pregnant... Um, but Joseph and Mary are not married yet. Now, in our culture, that's, that's nothing too unusual, but in this culture, this carries more than a whiff of scandal. As readers of the Bible, we know that nothing untoward has gone on. The Virgin Mary is pregnant, miraculously, by the Holy Spirit. But if a king is being born, and there's even the hint that the king is illegitimate, that's not a good look, is it? In verse 6... The baby is born, and yet look at verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. There's no comfortable private hospital bed, no snuggly blankets, no beautiful hardwood cot that Joseph might have made, no teddies, no nightlights. Jesus is simply swaddled and put in an animal's feeding trough. Joseph and Mary don't appear to be staying with family. They're not at home. They can't even get a guest room for the night. They're out with the animals. Giving birth in a nice, clean, hygienic maternity ward is bad enough, I'm I'm reliably informed. This is the most basic, rough, poor start to life possible, isn't it? And this continued, actually, as the theme of Jesus' life. Those who were expecting a king in the line of David, frankly, sometimes found Jesus to be an extremely puzzling person. He looked and acted like no other king before or since. He lived his whole life, pretty much, in and around that rural backwater in the north of the country. He not only had no palace, he had no fixed abode at all, no permanent home. He wandered about the place, sleeping rough when he needed to, mingling with the poor and lowly. He never held any office, never had much money, never strategized about the defeat of a military power, never enacted a new fiscal policy, never secured any borders or appointed any politicians. He never even married or had any kids, which is usually what kings are fairly preoccupied with doing to secure their dynasty. He only ever went to Jerusalem, the capital city, a handful of times in his life, And when he finally did spend a bit of time there, right at the end of his life, he was tried on the charges of treason and blasphemy and crucified on a Roman cross. And this is the guy who Zechariah said was the horn of salvation, the one who would usher in God's reign of righteousness and peace. 
This is the guy who the angels say in verse 12 is the saviour, the Christ, the Lord, the fulfilment of all the promises of David, the king of Judea. We've got to ask the question, are they wrong? Are they just wrong? Are they misguided? How can this baby save the people from their enemies when he will end up being crucified by those enemies? Well, another line from Zechariah's song will help us understand. Would you turn back with me to page three and we'll just see this together. This is Zechariah talking to his own child, John the Baptist, about what's going to happen later. So I want you to look at verse 76, please, halfway down the page. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and guide our feet into the path of peace. Do you hear there how salvation is going to come? Zechariah says that salvation must come through the forgiveness of sins. I think in a strange way, Caesar Augustus would have understood this. Every good Roman emperor knew that if you want to build a kingdom... If you want a secure and stable empire, it's no good defeating the enemies outside if you haven't defeated the enemy within. And the consistent message of the Bible is that our greatest enemy, the greatest threat to our stability, our peace, the greatest threat to the order and harmony that we all crave but we don't seem to be able to get, is not outside, but within. It's what the Bible calls sin. Our persistent attitude of rebellion against God and against his ways. An attitude which is now baked into who we are because of God's judgment on our rebellion. That is why my studies are a mess. It's no one else's fault. It's a mess because I live in it and I'm a messy person. And actually, I said it'd be easy to tidy up, but I've tried tidying it up. But I have a flaw which means the thing is never going to be properly fixed as long as I'm the one trying to fix it. Now that is true of our world. Our world is a mess because we, God's creatures, have tried to run it ourselves without any reference to the God who made us. And every solution we've so far come up with has been based on the idea that we're the ones who can fix it. If only we get the right policies or the right government, or the right king, or the right ideas or philosophies, if only we clear out the enemies and replace them with the good guys, we'll sort out the brokenness in our society, we'll sort out the brokenness in our world. But what do you do if the enemy is within all of us? How do you fight against that? How do you fix it when the people who are doing the fixing are internally broken? This, by the way, is just one of the reasons I'm so convinced about the truth of the Bible's message. I think it simply explains our story with deep, compelling power. All of us want this world to be fixed, don't we? And none of us can do it. And the same is true of our own lives. Sure, there are many things that are wrong in our lives that are somebody else's fault. But much of it, let's be honest, is down to us. And it's down to us because we've ignored the God who made us and pushed him away and we're suffering the consequences of his judgment on us. How do you fight that enemy? What king can possibly fix that 
level of brokenness? The answer is a king the like of which we've never seen before or since. It's the poor baby in the manger in Bethlehem. He is God's gracious answer to the great question of our world, his loving solution to the problem which we ourselves have made. We noticed earlier that Jesus' birth came about through the hidden power of God's kingdom. It didn't look like much from the outside. It looked like Caesar Augustus was in control, but God was in charge all along, maneuvering Caesar to make his decree just so Joseph and Mary could be in the right place at the right time. Well, Jesus' death at the end of his life is an even greater example of the hidden power of God's kingdom. As Jesus dies on the cross, it looks as though the king of Rome has just won again. He's quelled the local rebellion. He's defeated an annoying, troublesome enemy, and the king of Bethlehem is dead. But Jesus' death is exactly what he came to do. He was punished and crucified as a traitor and a blasphemer. He was none of those things. But we are. And so as Jesus dies, treated as a rebel, he took on himself the punishment for our rebellion. He took on himself all the sin and brokenness of humanity and therefore bore in himself God's full judgment on it. And after doing that, he rose from the dead. He didn't need to marry and have physical children to secure his throne and establish his dynasty. He simply took his rightful place as our king. The king in David's line who would rule over God's kingdom forever. And therefore, because he has risen, because he's ascended to heaven, he still rules today. And he has promised that his hidden kingdom will one day be revealed in all its fullness. In a new creation of peace and security and joy forever. But... One final question, who are his subjects? Who benefits from this rule of the king of Bethlehem? Notice one last thing with me from the passage before we conclude. Turn back, please, to page six. Answer this question, who who receives the birth announcement of the new king? I wonder if you're a parent, how you announce the birth of your child, WhatsApp message to all the family, or a Facebook post. Perhaps if you're very smart, you've got a column inch in the Times of London. Um, the birth, uh, if anyone did, please come and tell me, that's so cool. The birth of the uh, royal baby is family, famously announced, isn't it, with a tight and framed document placed on an easel at the gates of Buckingham Palace. Very fancy. So how is the birth of the promised king in the line of King David announced? <clears throat> Let's see in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Well, the method of the announcement is impressive enough, isn't it? Angels singing glory. I think we got a glimpse of that earlier, didn't we, with those wonderful angels. It was almost like being there. But notice with me who they are talking to. They're talking to some shepherds. Unnamed, unimpressive, sleeping rough in a field. Poor men, 
humble men, men in that respect, not unlike their king lying in a manger in Bethlehem. And to these shepherds, the angel says, this is good news of great joy for all people. And that tells us something. It tells us about the kind of people who are going to enjoy this king. It tells us about the kind of people who can have their sins forgiven and who can look forward with hope and confidence to that restored new kingdom. On the one hand, it tells us, anyone at all, anyone at all, this good news is not just for Roman citizens like the Pax Romana was, it is for all people. There are no barriers to entry, no conditions, no qualifications. It can be for shepherds or sherpas or shoe shopkeepers, anyone at all. On the other hand, there is a certain humility that is called for to accept this king. The kind of humility shown by Jesus himself and perhaps embodied for us in these poor shepherds. The humility to admit our brokenness, our rebellion, our sin, the humility to say that the mess of this world, the mess of our lives, is at least partially our own fault. The humility to know that we can't fix it. To such people, the poor king of Bethlehem is the greatest gift, the greatest good news, the greatest joy that we can possibly experience. It is the gift of salvation, forgiveness, and hope. Let's conclude. In the year 9 BC, an inscription was written on the stone of a temple in Praene, which is in modern-day Turkey. It was an inscription honouring Caesar Augustus. I'm going to read it to you, see if it sounds familiar. The Emperor Augustus, who, being sent to us and our descendants as saviour, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas, having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news concerning him. Isn't that fascinating? Well, Caesar Augustus is remembered fondly enough. There are still a couple of statues to him knocking around. We still travel on his roads. August is fun, I guess. He's still admired in a sort of theoretical way. But he's dead. His reign is long gone. And no one particularly thinks about him anymore, unless they're ancient historians. No one is still obeying his decrees. No one is trusting him for salvation anymore. We no longer believe his good news or celebrate his birthday. 23rd of September, if you're interested. We do not expect the second coming of Caesar Augustus, nor would we enjoy it very much if it did happen, I don't think. But millions and billions of people all over the world, including a couple of hundred perhaps in this church, do continue today to worship and trust and love the poor king of Bethlehem, who we know as the powerful king of all the world. We believe his good news and we celebrate his birthday. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're someone who is trusting in Jesus, I hope you are thoroughly enjoying the gift that Jesus is to you. But if you're not, I hope today you're at least seriously asking this question. Why do so many people find this Jesus so compelling? I hope I've given you the very beginnings of an answer in this talk. And Joe, in a a moment, will give us some ways to think further on that question if you'd like to. But for now, to finish our time together, I'm going to pray.
And this is a prayer that you can pray if you want to put your trust in King Jesus yourself, whether that's for the first time or the thousandth. Let's uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, mighty God, we admit that the biggest problem we face in our world is actually within us. We admit that we are rebels against your good and kind rule. And we admit that we've tried to rule and fix our lives ourselves, and it hasn't gone well. Please forgive us. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus as the king of this world. Thank you that he humbled himself to a life of poverty and to death on a cross, to take our punishment and to forgive our sins. Please help us to humble ourselves, to submit to Jesus as our king, and to accept your free gift of forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.